You are now listening to the Hack My Age podcast, the show that brings you guests for biohacking women over 50. I'm your host, Zora Benamou, a gerontologist, digital nomad, certified sports nutrition, and breathing coach. I'm the author of the Longevity Master Plan, the cookbook, Eating for Longevity, and a new upcoming energy reboot program for women over 50. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and I would really appreciate it if you could please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find us too. This is a really small but very critical gesture that makes a huge impact for me to support a podcast for older women, help us grow stronger, get our voice out there, and attract even more amazing guests to the show for you and for me. Hey. I have a confession to make. I use my computer and phone before bed. I know, I know it's not what we're supposed to do, but I've got a hack for that. It's called blue blocking glasses. So ever since I hosted light expert Rudy Nassif, who created Viva Rays and who taught us about light nutrition, I understood that we need to feed our bodies light and darkness to optimize our health. I wear my glasses starting when the sun goes down, and I wear them when I have the lights on the kitchen, when I'm making dinner, and while I'm using my computer or phone at night. And the reason I wear them is to protect my melatonin production so that I can fall asleep and stay asleep all night. These glasses play a big role in hacking my sleep, and everyone knows I get the best sleep scores. Now, Viva Rays makes the best blue blocking glasses I've ever had, Plus, you always comment on me wearing them in my stories, telling me they look really cool. Now, I noticed that Viva Rays are different than the cheapo Amazon ones I first had. First, they're like three glasses in one because they have these magnetic clip-ons of orange and red in addition to the yellow. Next, most blue blocking glasses block out either too much light or not enough. And finally, they're made in an optic lab, so you can get reader bifocal and progressive lenses. Oh, and and they're ethically made with sustainable materials. And this was an important feature for Rudy. Now, I love my glasses so much, I reached out to Rudy and asked if he would like to sponsor the podcast. So here we are. And Rudy is also offering a generous 15% discount for you. So go to Viva Rays and use the code Zora. Now let's start the show. So today we are going to talk to a doctor about sexual health and libido. It's that conversation you always wished you had with your doctor, but maybe you were too shy to have. But Dr. Lindsay Harper isn't any kind of doctor. She's an OBGYN. That means she's a doctor of obstetrics and gynecology, and that's delivering babies and seeing a lot of female patients talking about their reproductive health. But she is a doctor with a passion for educating women about sex, desire, and sexual health, not just making babies. So she was so frustrated as a doctor when she couldn't find a modern and accessible resource to help her patients with problems of low libido and other sex issues that she decided to create something herself. And that's an app called Rosie, which connects 84 million women in the U.S. with sexual problems with hope and community and research-backed solutions to improve their lives. So we're going to first talk about the issues of low desire and then the solutions. For the last seven years, Dr. Harper has been in private practice in Dallas, Texas, and is also a hospitalist, meaning she sees patients in hospitals too. But she doesn't stop there. Dr. Harper is an associate professor of OBGYN for Texas and A&M College of Medicine, a fellow of the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and a fellow of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. So I think she's someone pretty well qualified to talk about women's health, don't you think? (laughs) So now without, without further ado, meet Dr. Harper. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. And this is definitely my favorite topic to discuss. I'm so thankful for the opportunity and looking forward to to our chat. Oh, I'm so glad you're open to this. I wish every doctor had the knowledge that you have. Me too. (laughs) Change that. Yeah, you are that doctor that every woman wishes she had. And and I first found you on Instagram, it was like, I think it was a live or something talking about women's sex issues. And I, I knew that you would be that person who could give really solid advice from an evidence-based perspective to our women in midlife. 
And there's so many topics we could cover, but we decided to first cover the biggest one for women in midlife that you see most in your practice, and that's low sex drive. And it's a topic that comes a lot when women go through menopause, uh, the menopause transition. So my question is why? And and we often blame it on our hormones, but is it just this or, or is there something else? Yeah. I mean, so low desire is actually the number one sexual problem that women face across their lifespan. And this was, a, there was a large study done women ages 18 to 65. This was the number one sexual complaint. So it's actually really common. And um, I think that, yeah, a lot of times we think, oh, you know, it can be explained by X or Y or Z or hormones or babies or not having babies or whatever the whatever the answer is. And the the actual answer, the science based answer is that it's all of these things. And for each different person, it may be the same thing or it may be many different things. And that's why it's so important to have these open and educated conversations so that we can get to the root of the the challenge or the the situation and we can help the person to solve it so during menopause specifically you know there are definite hormonal changes there's the drop in estrogen there's also the drop in testosterone and those absolutely affect our sexual function across the board from desire arousal orgasm all of the things can, are definitely affected by hormones and really the lack thereof and so that can be a challenge which can be addressed the other pieces of the puzzle especially during menopause that go into this are changes that are happening in our body in other ways right that you know we lose some of that skin elasticity around menopause due to the lack of estrogen the vagina loses estrogen and the skin gets thin and dry and so sometimes sexual pain can be an issue which obviously would cause a lack of desire um, there's also changes in the way that our body stores fat right we go from one shape to a different shape with more fat deposit around our midsection which can lead to our own internalized feelings of not, you know, feeling great about our body and during sex and how it's functioning. And there's a lot of chatter sometimes for many of us, especially as women in our brains during sex that affects sort of how we show up or how we're, what our experience of, of sex and intimacy really is. You know, there's insomnia during menopause there's hot flashes during menopause there's agitation which can for many reasons cause problems of how we think about ourselves but also problems in our relationship so it's not just one thing it's sort of like a lot of things all at once much like puberty right that kind of caused you to stop and take a minute need to need to reevaluate sort of where you are what your goals are and how to how to achieve those in ways that you might not have had to really think about very deliberately in the past so it sounds very very much bi-directional too so you know, we 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 always want to say oh it's our hormones and but like you said there's so many factors that can play with this I and mean, well, we know I mean it's whether you're happy, you're not happy, you're going through a divorce or a happy marriage, like your, your hormones are going to go, right? So we, how how much do we know plays a role in our libido, not just the, I mean, how much is the hormones and how much is it an external factor, maybe a divorce or, or poor sleep or something going on in your life? Yeah, it's, it's hard to answer that question as a generalization. I would say, you know, just like you mentioned, hormones are always going to go down in menopause. That's sort of the definition of menopause is your hormones go down. <laughs> and so that can have a more dramatic effect on some women than it does on others. And that shows up in lots of ways, right? Some women have a, occasional hot flashes, not that big of a deal. And other women are plagued by them. Their life is ruined by them. Some women might have, you know, occasional lack of sleep or insomnia. Other women don't sleep for decades. You know, so there's a large range of expression of how the change in hormones shows up in each of our lives. And some of the symptoms may be more dramatic for different women than others. So we can't, hormone, the lack of hormones has an effect on everyone's body and on everyone's sexual function. The question is to what degree, right? And so for some women, as I mentioned, the lack of, estrogen in the vagina and sexual pain are game enders basically for sex. They're not going to be wanting sex. They're not going to be enjoying sex. They're going to have decreased sensitivity leading to less orgasms. And so that becomes a vicious cycle that absolutely has to be addressed. So if you are a person who identifies with lack of lubrication and pain during sex, that needs to be addressed immediately because you're never going to 
hope to improve your sexual function while you're experiencing sexual pain. We've got to address sexual pain. For others of us who are experiencing, you know, just straight low desire, like no sexual pain, but just could not care less, would rather get sleep 10 out of 10 times than stay up a little later and, and be intimate. You know, I think that there are other things at play that we can really start to look into. So as we age and our hormone levels change, and this happens for many of us in our 30s, then we notice a change from spontaneous sexual desire, which is where, you know, you might just have spontaneous thoughts of, you know, wanting to be sexually active or intimate with your partner, or with, you know, thoughts of, of fantasy thoughts, something like that. And that just happens kind of out of the blue where you might feel those, those ways. But as we age, oftentimes we move into something called responsive desire, which means you need exposure to a sexual cue um, in order to feel aroused, which happens in the body in the genitals and then the desire which happens in the brain kind of kicks in in response to that and that's actually really normal that's a normal way to experience desire especially for women as we age and so when when we have that piece of information we can start to try to tap into that tool and say huh i wonder if i have responsive desire and you can kind of test that out so for some women this looks like you know they might want to read an erotic story before they're wanting to be intimate that night right so it's not as if you're like, oh, I'm feeling, you know, frisky, I'm going to read an erotic story. You read an erotic story to feel frisky so you can accomplish your sexual desire goals, if that makes sense. Um, so you can check and see if that works for you. Other women describe like, it's kind of like going to the gym. Like I never actually want to go to the gym, but once I get there, I feel so good. And I'm like, why don't I go to the gym more often? For, for women, it can also, that can also kind of be analogous to sex where it's like, okay, I don't really want to do this, but I know that it's going to reward me in so many ways. And so you might just get started with touching or kissing and start to, you know, help your, your body get aroused and then your brain to feel desirous. So there's a couple of different ways where you can enter that responsive desire pathway and really accomplish those desire goals that, that may or may not involve hormones. So my job as a physician is to educate women about the risks and benefits of sort of all of our options. Hormones are definitely on the table and can be an asset in this conversation, but they are not an imperative for everyone experiencing sexual dysfunction um, unless, you know, potentially there, there's a different conversation to be had for sexual pain. But for low desire, hormones can be helpful, but there are other ways to, to help with that as well. This episode is sponsored by Oxford HealthSpan, the creators of my favorite supplement, Primadine. I admit it, I am a total supplement junkie, but if I had to choose only one, it would be this one. And it's because Primadine is spermidine, and this is shown to activate autophagy, which is super important. Now, this is a cellular cleanup and recycling process that declines as we age. So as we get older, our cells accumulate a lot of junk and waste, which isn't good for our cells, our health, nor our longevity. So we need to clean it up. And if you want the research on this, go to OxfordHealthSpan.com and you can see all of it, showing how spermidine supports our brain, our hormones, and our heart health. And another great side effect is stronger hair, skin, and nails, but also longer eyelashes. But, you know, the real important reason why I love Primadine is because I have never, ever received as much feedback on a product I recommended as I have with Primadine. Literally every week, someone reaches out to me on Facebook or Instagram with an amazing testimonial. And... Most of the time, it's about improved sleep. And even some of you told me it's reversed a bit of your gray hair too. So I find that totally amazing. So I can honestly say with 100% certainty that Primadine is the best spermidine supplement you'll ever find. And you can try it with a 15% discount by using the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, on OxfordHealthSpan.com. Just be sure to get back to me with your results too. Now enjoy the show. Vaginal dryness, for example, if you can just fix that with a vaginal cream, like, God, that's an easy one, right? That's just quite simple. And if you get your, if that's what's taking away your desire, wow, that's um, simple. And that's 
a great solution. Then you talk a little bit about the mind and the mindset. And I've, so long ago, I don't remember who I heard it from, that the brain is the largest sex organ. And that's- It is, absolutely. So that's that's where the the reading the erotica as well could be super interesting. We're going to talk about. I want to talk a little bit about solutions, but before we do, I want to. I want, I'm always curious about women. When you reach fifty, you you have half your friends are divorced, half of them are still married, some of them are married in long marriages, some are in the second marriages. Are you seeing in this age category uh, more low libido issues in women who are married or women who are single or? Is it quite equal? One of my favorite sex therapists, her name is Esther Perel. She I love says, her. Yeah, she's amazing. She says that monogamy is the killer of the number one killer of desire, which I mean, <laughs> so take that for what you will. But the thing is, is that whenever we have been in a long-term relationship, we really need novelty to kind of keep things fresh and to keep that desire going. And that's okay. There's nothing, that doesn't mean anything that's wrong with us or with our partner. And so you'll, you'll see that the couples who have that information, who are dedicated to that sort of, you know, piece of their lives will have more success than those who are not aware of that or who are interpreting each other's sort of lack of desire as something about themselves or something about the relationship when it really can just end up being a factor of the long-term relation or a result of the long-term relationship. So I think we have to really, you know, send that message out there that our friends who are divorced, our friends who are in their, you know, new and fresh relationships, they are generally having better sex. (laughs) And that's because we're not offering that to our friends who are in those long-term relationships as an option, trying, you know, how to spice things up, how to keep things interesting. Doesn't mean you have to invite new partners in the bedroom. means you have to like be having open, honest conversations about sex, about pleasure, about what it is that you're interested in or what questions or ideas that you want to explore. And those are not tools that we are given, um, you know, especially as younger people getting married. It's kind of like, oh, off into the sunset. Good luck with that. You know, I think we don't have enough conversations about how, you know, we should always keep that conversation alive. We should feel safe with our lifetime partner in these conversations. And that's not really modeled for us. So it's something that I hope, you know, will change um, just like everything else we're discussing. I do know that there's a a better success rate if you kind of keep those ideas in mind in those long-term relationships. That makes perfect sense. So yeah, when you're in a long-term relationship, for sure, you you are looking for something to spice it up. And that yeah, that's the novelty. And it's so easy when you first get married or you first fall in love. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to work at it. That having to work at it is (laughs) is the downer. Yeah. But there are great rewards, right? Yes. One of my other favorite sex therapists, her name is Lori Mintz. She argues that we always work at it. It's just at the beginning, we think working at it is fun. She's like, when you're getting ready for your date with your like, you know, new partner and you're shaving your legs and you're like putting on your makeup and you're curling your hair, like you're working at it. You're putting effort into that new sexual relationship. But whenever, you know, you're 10 or 15 or 30 years into it, we think we shouldn't have to work, but we were actually working at the beginning. We just don't think of it as work at the beginning. So I think when you kind of reframe it in that way, that it makes a little bit more sense cognitively that we're always having to work at it. And it doesn't, once again, it doesn't mean anything bad if you are having to work at it, because that's just how this all happens. You know, we're all sending signals at all times. I think some of the keys to marriage is to also, you know, to keep some of some things private, like no cutting your toenails in front of me or, yeah. or, or burping <laughs> exactly. or like that stuff is to me has always been turn off and and thank God we've set Same. some rules. And I think, yeah, the intimacy is kind of broken when you, when you, because when you, you don't have that when you're in a fresh relationship, you're working hard. Like I'm not going to fart because that would be really a downer in the middle of sex or something or or when you're preparing yourself, right? You don't hide all that stuff, but you just open up. So I guess there must be, I don't know, you don't want to be so tight. And so, you know, completely, there must be some balance. I don't know. Absolutely. And I mean, we're just going to have a whole conversation about Esther Perel, but that's another, that's another point that she makes, which is that when over familiarity, like you might have with a sibling 
is not sexy. And so we shouldn't, you know, cross those boundaries in long time, long-term monogamous relationships either. And that maintaining that sense of otherness and a little bit of mystery and independence from one another really um, ignites eroticism rather than dampens it, like some of the things you were just mentioning. This actually kind of goes with the whole biohacking thing. Don't get too comfortable, right? Yeah, <laughs> Seek a little exactly. discomfort. <laughs> That's right. It's the theme of life, I'm afraid. What would you say are your top three tips for increasing libido and desire yeah. in women in midlife? I love this. Okay, so the first one would definitely be, and this sounds very like anti-everything we've been saying, but when you think about it correctly, it's actually supportive of everything we've been saying, and that is to schedule sex. And so this sounds like boring and like, oh gosh, is do I schedule it like my pap smear? Like that's not fun at all. But what it really means is you're clearing out time on your calendar in your mind for intimacy with your partner, right? So if this is something that you're working on, I think it's always best to view it in a positive light. Like I'm probably just like I might prioritize my health, I'm gonna prioritize intimacy with my partner or for myself. And be and and in order to make that happen in our busy lives, oftentimes we have to put it on the calendar, whether we call it date night or whether we call it some code name doesn't matter. Um, but what it allows us to do is number one, actually make time for it. And number two, make brain space for it where it's like, okay, maybe I'm going to use one of my responsive desire tools. Like I'm going to read an erotic story at lunch today, kind of get my brain on the wavelength. Cause I know that this is what I hope will my night will look like tonight. And I know that if I you know, institute these tools that that is more likely to make it successful. It also might allow you to prepare your body like in a way that makes you feel sexy, whether that's like being completely showered or whatever that means, or maybe grabbing some lingerie, not for your partner, for yourself, because that helps to put you in the mindset of like, I am a sexual being, I am deserving of pleasure, kind of get you in the right headspace for that. So scheduling sex is huge. The, the second is really figuring out what works for you if you have responsive desire. Most people who come in saying they have low desire do have responsive desire and they just haven't tapped into that. There are, you know, a smaller portion of the population who need medicine, who need, you know, um, who need help and that's okay too. But what you wanna try first is to see if the responsive desire pathway works for you. The easiest way to do that is erotica. Many of us read Fifty Shades of Grey however many years ago and that was a wildly popular series for a reason and it's because it kind of got the wheels turning for a lot of us which led to some other you know fun things so all you have to do is repeat that behavior to get that result right and so many people unfortunately i don't think the majority but some people feel like erotica should be like forbidden or is off limits but i think when we think of erotica as a prescription because there's many studies to support its use for low desire in women then it sort of opens up our brain to think about this okay like would i rather you know maybe take a pharmaceutical for this or would i rather try this evidence-based behavioral intervention and i think when it's put in that light it gives us a little bit more permission and it's also important to know that fantasy and reality don't ever have to meet like you can have an erotic fantasy read an erotic story and have a whole different like in real life sex life and they don't have to have anything to do with one another it doesn't mean anything about you about your partnership, anything like that. So when we think about it as a tool, I think it's super helpful. Another super important thing is to try as often as you can to have open conversations with your sexual partner, sexual partners, because whenever we are expecting our partners to just know what it is we want or we need, we're really doing ourselves a disservice. And I think that we know that we can't expect that when we're managing finances together. We can't expect that when we're parenting together. Like we have to express our points of view for success on these topics and for successful compromise. And when we're withholding that information from our partners because we're uncomfortable or because we don't wanna hurt their feelings, we're not going to get where we want to be, where where you know where our aspirational sort of sexual health is, and so that's something that's harder to do. It's much easier to do all this stuff by yourself than it is to have a sexual com a conversation about sex with our sexual partners. But the more you do it, the easier that it gets. Um, and there's lots of tools to kind of help along the way with that with that issue. And I I didn't I know you didn't ask for four, but yes, I would also more. encourage people. <laughs> <laughs> I could just talk for a really long time. I would always encourage people to have a conversation with their healthcare providers about it. 
placement. It may be an opportunity for vaginal cream. It may be an opportunity for pelvic floor PT. Like there are so many things from a physical perspective that go into this that we don't want to miss while we're trying to like do it all ourselves. We want to make sure that, you know, we've got all systems ready um, so that, you know, if and when we, we institute these other tools that our body is, is on board as well. This, you've made such great points. I'm going to have these all in the show notes. And I want to talk, comment on each and every one, which I think maybe may be helpful or maybe not for some people. When The first one you said about timing, timing sex. And it kind of reminds me when I was health coaching, uh, I would talk about how how often should you exercise or, or things like that. And sometimes I would say to some people, just plan doing it every day, whether you do you know yoga or a walk or whether you do intense workout, doesn't matter. Just because if you do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you may skip Wednesday and then you only have twice a week when you actually need three. And so I was like, just schedule it every day. And then you're more likely, you know, when you, you miss it, you know, if you plan seven days, you may actually get four or five, you know, because you, you may be very uh, common to miss a couple of days. The other thing I think you're absolutely spot on, it totally worked, at least for me and my husband, actually. So in, in that line, when my kids were small and they were going to school, pickup was at four. So two o'clock was always our time. Like that was yeah. our, I knew that that was our time. I didn't schedule anything or at least, you know, most of the time. And that was your intimate time. And it just, you didn't have to go, okay, well, Wednesday's at four and then on Friday after dinner. And it was kind of like that. I, I, for me, I like consistency. It was just whether it's some, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen every time, but it's there scheduled. And then you're more likely to hit five out of seven times or four out of seven or whatever. So that's my little tip that worked for me. And the other thing I think was really fun, and I think play is, is another big thing about um, sex sex and intimacy, was when I found Kiminami. Do you know who she is? No, I do not. Oh, Tell wow. Okay. She's more of a relationship uh, expert and sex expert, and, and she's kind of crazy. And uh, and I found her, it was recommended by a friend of mine, oh, you got to follow her on Instagram. And at the, when I followed her, it was just before Valentine's Day, uh, I think it was maybe right around Valentine's Day, and she's had a 30-day sex challenge. And okay, I yeah. love challenges. I like yeah. <laughs> competition. That's just me. Not everybody likes that. And so on Valentine's Day, I told my husband, I'm going to gift you 30 days of sex every day. We have to take the challenge. <laughs> I love it. It's like, what? And that brought a lot of fun and play. And uh, we had to become creative. I was like, oh, you know, and then he's the first thing he asked was, what are the rules? And I was like, I don't know. Like, you're, yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to have sex with you every day. I don't need rules. I didn't even read the rules. I was like, that's a good idea. Right. But he's just <laughs> like that. So <laughs> that was really that's fun. Amazing. So you can guys, you don't need Kim and Ami, You don't need Valentine's Day to do a 30 day challenge. Just say, you know, Zora and Dr. Harper told you to do this. So have fun <laughs> with that. So that was the first point. The second one you talked about, reading erotica and, and that response, what was responsive with that? Desire. What was it you got responsive yeah. desire. So that's, that totally makes sense. I had a great podcast um, with Dr. Rachel Abrams Carlton. She wrote the book, The Multi-Orgasmic Woman. And okay. we were talking about erotica and she said the same thing can use this. And, but we were talking about porn. And so I said, well, yeah, I haven't seen porn in a long time because I got turned off when somebody said, you're supporting a business uh, that's really degrading to women. And and then she said that there was, um, it was called, um, uh, oh, what's it called? I can't remember the word now, uh, but it was like porn, not made by women for women, but or like organic porn or something. something like there's that. something called to feminist me. porn. That yeah. is becoming more and more popular. But then there's also like this idea of real sex porn, which is another sort of genre. But there have been companies that have tried to address that. So like Balesa is one that they make porn sort of for women. It has sort of women in the as directors. They're telling stories from the woman's point of view. They're focused on female pleasure, how women normally experience pleasure. So yeah, porn is not all created equal by any means. And there are a lot of people who are very familiar with the area that would tell you if you're going to watch porn, pay for your porn, because that is, you know, the more ethical way to do it. Um, and ethical so, yeah, porn, that's what it was called, ethical, ethical porn. porn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you Google so, ethical porn, it doesn't really come out. I don't think I found exactly what she was talking about. But yeah, yeah so you're saying pay for companies. it. What, yeah, pay for know. it. 
the reason that the argument is made to pay for it is because those actors, you know, are better paid, they are better screened, and um, they are, they just have better sort of uh, working standards in those situations, rather than, you know, porn that's trying to get by on every nickel and dime and made who knows where by who knows whom. Um, so it's just a more sort of stand up organization, if you will, whenever there's a subscription or a pay for pay for view type of situation. Hey, I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hack my age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. Susan Bratton is, is another sex expert who's coming on to this program that I have, the Menopause Energy Reboot Program. And she's been, she, I liked her perspective and I'll, I'll be doing a podcast with her soon. And she said, you know, sex, the way we understand it, what we've been watching and the way we're learning it is very much a male perspective. And so we keep thinking this is the way we should be doing it. This is the way we should, what we should expect. And in fact, it's not. And that makes perfect sense because yeah. yeah, everything we've seen, usually these directors are men and they're running the show and they come up with a plot and how are we going to turn this around? Or if it's, it does it exist a whole other side of, of porn for women made by women, things like that. Yeah, it does exist. It's a, definitely a growing sector. Um, but you're right that traditionally, and I think 95% of porn that's out there is it, you know, the male gaze is what it's called, right? Where it's like, oh, women have orgasms from, you know, these men with giant penises and some thrusting. And we all know that that's not the way that most of most women have orgasms. In fact, 87% of women have orgasms through clitoral stimulation, nothing to do with penis and, and vagina, you know, intercourse. So that's the type of pleasure that we need to see depicted in porn, in erotica, in movies, like even in movies, we see it if it's not porn, right? If there's like a love scene, everyone's having orgasms at the same time through penis and vagina sex. And it's like, <laughs> this is not reality, people. And so what happens, and this is, I mean, this argument could be made for all of women's sexual health, all of women's sexuality generally, is that the, the women who do not experience orgasm through penetrative sex, which are, as we just talked about, the majority of us feel like, oh gosh, there's something wrong with me. And I need to go see my doctor and see like, why is this not right? And it's like, oh, actually that's the norm, but no one's ever talking about that. In fact, many of us are faking orgasms through penetrative sex, which is sort of, you know, compounding the problem. And so I think the more conversations we have like this, Women can be like, oh, well, that's normal. I experience orgasms through clitoral stimulation. There's nothing wrong with that. I can share that with my partner and tell him or her that 87% of women have orgasms this way. And then it sort of opens up this idea for us to change the sexual script, which is like, you know, especially those who are in a long-term relationship, there's some, many of us get into a pattern where it's like, well, first this, then this then this and that's sex right but it get when we have this idea that people experience pleasure in different ways and introducing novelty and like what how can we explore creativity through sex it gives us the opportunity to change our script to try new things to go out of order to totally do you know things that were never on the menu before and that keeps it exciting but it also keeps it pleasurable for both parties you may also know that there's a huge orgasm gap when they ask men and women how many of us experienced orgasm in our last sort of sexual uh, experience. And the, the gap is like 20% more men than women. And that's because we're just not aware of how women experience orgasms as women, as men, and as a healthcare provider community. You know, there's a lot of education to be done for sure. And probably a lot of research more done too, to yeah, understand. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, so, okay. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say there's a great website called omgyes.com, and they have sort of classified more than 20,000 women's experiences of pleasure, and they present it in a way that is meant for sort of women and their partners to learn more and understand more about their own pleasure, their partner's experience of pleasure. So that's a great science-based resource if anyone's interested. Oh, good. I'll have that in the show notes. And the last point that you made uh, was about telling your partner what you want. But I think that 
some people don't even know what they want. And maybe you've been raised of not touching yourself or not exploring your own body. How often does that happen? And what do you think is the best thing to do about it? That happens a lot, actually. And I think that, you know, because of the way that pleasure and sex are portrayed in many of the ways that we might see it outside of our own relationships, we kind of, um, and we're not given the permission to explore for us what pleasure means. We kind of, you know, take what we have and model those those types of uh, sexual relationships. And whenever you're given the permission, and once again, this is just like erotica, but it's like whenever you're told by your physician or by your therapist or you heard on a podcast that it's okay because as homework, you need to start exploring your own pleasure. You need to know what feels good to you. What kind of touch do you like? Where do you like touch? How does that change during your cycle or during your over the course of time with menopause or during pregnancy? pregnancy or during a chronic illness, like these things are fluid and they're always changing. So if we don't even feel the permission, the comfort to explore that with our own bodies, then we're not going to know how to communicate that with our partners to your point. And that can be through self-touch. That can also be through exploring things like erotica or porn or whatever you feel comfortable with, because it allows you to kind of try on different pairs of shoes without really buying anything. You know what I mean? You can kind of explore <laughs> things and think, oh, that sounds interesting. And maybe all you ever do is listen to that erotic story with your partner before sex, right? Maybe it has nothing to do with actually making that scenario happen, but the ideas of that sort of are brought in. Or, you know, so there's lots of different ways that you for yourself can explore what sex and pleasure mean. And then you can, once you kind of become empowered and that comfortable with that, then you can start to communicate those things to your partner. But that's such a good point. If we don't know for ourselves, what do we have to communicate other than, you know, potentially this is an area that I want to work on. Do you want to explore these things with me? You know, I think that piece of the conversation is always helpful, but if you know, I think we do need to grant people more permission to be figuring that on their own to open up those conversations for sure. Great. So, okay. I was really disappointed. I couldn't download the Rosie app outside of the US. So I couldn't do much research, but what I found on your website is pretty amazing. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the Rosie app is and how it can help a woman in midlife, not just with issues of low libido, but maybe with any other problems they have. Yeah, thank you. Um, so when I was in practice, what was happening is that I was getting patients literally back to back to back every day with sexual health complaints. And I just felt very like inadequate at helping them. And that was making me sad because I could see that these women were trusting me right with this information and expecting me to show up with like some some important ideas that they could take home. And I wasn't doing that. And so I went and got a bunch more training, became a fellow of, you know, this um, sexual medicine organization. And so I'm starting to understand like, wow, there are evidence based ways so many to help women with sexual health problems. But the challenge is that no one's talking about it. The medical community is not trained. They're, you know, we're not allowed to say these words in the media. We're not portraying pleasure in a way that's that's legitimate in, to your point, in movies or porn. There's so much misinformation on top of the actual issues that this is creating this grime of shame and embarrassment that prevents us from ever actually getting to the issues themselves to begin with. And so, you know, when I was thinking about the next steps for this and, and where my passion is, I was like, okay, I could open a sex medicine clinic in Dallas, which is where I am, or we could start this platform to try to bring together all of these evidence-based pieces of information, connect women to the resources that they need to get to, whether it's a therapist, a physician, a pelvic floor PT, understand the FDA approved options, the over-the-counter options, the behavioral changes, like we've just talked about really create this holistic, whole person support when it comes to women's sexual health issues so we can remove shame and embarrassment and we can really get women to the connections they need faster. And that's really what Rosie represents. So it's an app that's available in the US and Canada actually um, that provides a ton of personalized evidence-based education recorded and contributed by experts across the board from menopause experts to breast cancer experts, sexual trauma experts, body image therapists, I mean, all over the, you know, religious um, sex therapists. So if you're, if you've grown up in a specific religious context with a lot of, 
you know, overlay there, then they can help you to become a little bit more sex positive within that context. So our goal really is to honor the individuality of each woman and her experience and bring her to a place of sex positivity within that context, whether that's a certain life stage, a certain cultural um, or religious set of beliefs. And um, we also have a library of erotica because we know that that's an evidence-based tool. We have a community where women can speak with one another anonymously. And we also offer live events. So that's coaching in a group setting, that's uh, workshops in a group setting, and also personalized one-on-one coaching with our, with our um, amazing sex coaches. So really trying to create this ecosystem where women can know they're not alone and know that there is always hope and support for whatever, whatever they're going through. It's such a great idea. I, I, I'm just desperate to get a hold of it because I think it could be really <laughs> just knowing that you're not alone. I think the community and any anything that we do when we're trying to learn something is so, so key and vital. And people ask questions you never even thought of or have issues you never thought and, and maybe one day you will. So we learn so much as a group. I'm very, very curious. How does your community, like if you have a group session with the, I don't know, 20 women on a a zoom call or how does that work and how do people like stay anonymous but yet participate if they're a little bit shy yes so we have thought put a lot of thought and energy and engineering into that particular scenario because my goal right is that everyone gets to hear the voice of another person going through something similar to what she's experiencing because that is so powerful so we've taken the time to to create those group experiences on a video platform where we use avatars so instead of like being on zoom where your professional picture might pop up (laughs) your headshot (laughs) and your name it's an avatar and it's your initials and these like i said these people are across two countries so that's you know very private and they can come on audio and use their voice if they want or they can enter questions in the chat and they're led by a sex coach or our workshops are led often by sex therapists or physicians and so we really try to foster that interactivity so that women can have that magic moment where they hear the story their story spoken by someone else and they can really understand oftentimes for the first time that truly they are not alone. And that is just such a uplifting moment to your point in a woman's life where they're like, okay, this isn't just me. And I have this supportive community around me. I know that there's a, at least a next step that I can take. And there, there is a lot of hope in the future. So we've tried to address those privacy concerns to really create that you know, safe environment using technology to our advantage. That's a brilliant idea. And so how do you manage then? You have single, married, LGBTQ, you have multiple partners, people are into kink. Like how do you differentiate these groups? Do you enter a group that you identify with or you just anyone can show up or how how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So the experience on the platform is personalized. So the digital content is personalized based on this onboarding questionnaire that everyone takes. So that takes into account your sexuality, your life circumstances, your hormonal changes, your are you taking care? We one of the questions is, are you responsible for the, you know, for other people, whether it's children or aging parents, because all of these things kind of build into who we are, your partnership status, things like that. So the digital content is personalized. And then the groups are sort of opt-in. So for example, um, we, we recently had a uh, workshop on February 13th, how to flirt. And so it's everyone who's really interested in understanding the science behind flirting, understanding like why are some people naturally good flirts and other people aren't? Does that mean that they can't become a good flirt? So really interesting topics like that. But we also have more serious ones like women who are having trouble with orgasm, um, women who are experiencing low desire. We have uh, occasionally we'll have breast cancer groups for breast cancer and sexuality um, topics and questions. So they're opt-in based usually on topics or experiences. Um, And what we found is that that does a, it really helps us achieve our mission of hearing those shared experiences, alleviating isolation and loneliness, and really elevating that level of hope and connection. Thank you so much for organizing this. It's about time. People need to have this. So Let's understand how the app works because I couldn't go on. I I understand that there's a free portion and there's a paid portion. And what do people get with the difference? 
Yeah. So anybody who's in the United States or Canada can download Rosie for free and just check it out. They can sort of see what we're all about, understand that we're created by experts. Also that we have a lot of data to support the work that we're doing. Cedar sinai recommended Rosie as the only app that they would recommend to patients with sexual health problems. Um, and so they can really understand that that piece of us is so important to who we are in terms of research. Um, and sharing really our learnings with the bigger world, because to your point, there's not enough research being done in this field. Um, so that's a huge part of who Rosie is as a company. So the free content is limited. We have available on the free side is community, um, and then a week of what we call the uh, wellness plan, which is the personalized content for users. And then if, if users want access to all of the digital content, so that's all of the evidence-based education and the library of Iraq, that's $10 a month. If users want access to the um, group um, live events, which are coaching sessions and the workshops, that's $50 per month. And then for access to the personalized one-on-one -on -one coaching, that's $150 a month. And of course, each tier higher includes everything else um, in the lower tiers as well. So if somebody wants to get personal coaching at 150, do they have to add on to that or that's included? They have one that's free included. session per month or how two often? Free, two included sessions per month. And then in the group sessions, it's unlimited. So you people can join as many group sessions per month as they would like to. That's pretty affordable considering, I don't know how much a sex therapist charges, but just normal regular therapists in the US can can go like 250 or something like that. I think it's quite 100%. Yeah. And, and coaches seem to be more exp more expensive than therapists these days. But yeah, we've done our best to really try to make it approachable because that is a huge barrier in this field is that insurance companies have yet to care about women's sexual health. They're not covering oh, the visits, right. they're, they're not, not covering, covering pharma. They're not covering therapists. They're not covering anything. So we know that we have an obligation to try to make this as approachable as possible. I mean, I understand the $150 is not doable for everybody, but it's to your point, it's much more economical than, than a lot of the alternatives. And we've worked really, really hard to get that down to a place that we feel is really fair. Yeah, that's right. In the US, they do would cover some, uh, I guess, depends on your plan some therapy or mental for mental health, but sexual health, I'm guessing, I don't know, does it, because I'm in Europe. So does insurance, does it, does it cover sexual therapy? Well, it depends. So the insurance covers a lot of sort of sexual health interventions for men, <laughs> and not so many for women, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so that's a lot of the work actually that Rosie is doing, which is to say our health and our sexual health for women is integral, the two cannot be separated, and that sexual health should be a part of covered health for women. So we're working really, really hard on that. It's, of course, a long game, but that's okay. And But for sex therapy, those practitioners, in my experience, are usually cash pay in the United States because there's not very many of them. So they opt out of insurance pretty quickly because their insurance sort of reimbursement rates compared to the cash reimbursement rates are, you know, night and day. So it's much more difficult to find a provider on the sex therapy side and on the sex medicine side, to be honest, who takes insurance because insurance is so limited in terms of reimbursement. This has got to change. And and if anyone thinks that older adults don't have sex, they're absolutely wrong. <laughs> 100%. And that should not be the, I mean, does anyone want that to be the narrative? Like, I, you know, I think that's just such a tragedy that we think sort of as we age, sex just dies you know, and it's like, that is, I don't think anybody wants that for their future. So we have to really change that um, harmful story that circulates because it's not true to your point. Yeah. When I was doing my master's of gerontology, we had a whole section on sex and, and older adults and, and actually the statistics were really high and, and, you know, it's just a stereotype that we have in our head. And in fact, I think as you as a doctor, I don't know if you've seen this, but STDs are quite rampant in older adults because people don't, the doctors are not thinking that they're having sex. So they don't, they don't uh, profile them that way. And they're not recommending, you know, they don't do the testing for that. They're just assuming, which is absolutely wrong. So this narrative is going to change with time and hopefully, right. <laughs> hopefully the insurance will cover this too. So are there any plans to open Rosie outside of the U S and Canada? 
Yes, we have we have very big plans that I am very excited about to be available, you know, across the world. In my in my earliest pitch, I wanted, you know, the I think the phrase was like I want Rosie to be available in Alabama, Albania and Afghanistan because women <laughs> across the world truly need access to these resources, truly need to know that they are not alone. And, you know, we think we're, we need this help in the US. Like we, people across the world need this help more than we do. You know what I mean? And I just have such a heart for that mission that, you know, I, I really want to see it through. I want it to be available everywhere. We will make those moves strategically, of course, um, you know, to attach to business goals, because without a successful business, we don't have a platform. Um, and so, you know, all of those have to, those decisions have to be made very thoughtfully, but absolutely, you know, I want to be available really everywhere that women are. So that's, that's everywhere. So then everybody go download the Rosie app now so that we yes, can change the world <laughs> and sexual health thank for women you. across the globe. You can find out all the details on meetrosie.com and in, in the app store, you can look for Rosie. Uh, you have a great Instagram as well, meet underscore Rosie and TikTok and, and, uh, and your website. You are offering uh, to our listeners Silver One MO is the code for one month of free membership. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So we would love to have all of your listeners on the platform. And also, you know, we are, we are a company that is always learning and growing. So if you have feedback, if any of your listeners have feedback, y'all always email us at support at Meet Rosie because we learn from you. We exist for you. So we love that two-way relationship. So feel free to reach out. Oh, I love that. So before I let you go, do you have any last words for a woman in midlife? I would, you know, I'm sure that many of your guests have had the same or similar thoughts, but I think that instead of focusing on midlife as the end of an era, right, as sort of like something to be conquered, I think it's helpful if we can view really every change as an opportunity, an opportunity to reevaluate what's working in our lives, what's not working in our lives, what freedom does that realization afford us? And we only have one life as far as I know. And so how can we make the absolute best of it? Whether that is with our sex life, whether that is with our partner, whether that is with how we spend, you know, the majority of our waking hours through the work that we do, what is it that really sparks that, you know, passion inside of us and how can we get more of it? And I think there is such a, you know, an opportunity to create the life that you want at this point, because there are, there is such a natural sort of change and shift, and that can lead to a greater change and shift in, in more of a intentional direction if you're open to it as well. Great words of advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Harper, for coming on. I hope we have you on again for, for more topics on sexual health. Thanks for having me. Such great fun. I appreciate so much that you're, you're open and spreading these messages to your community. So thanks for having me. Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.